Well, we are continuing our study of the church, and we're at a place where we thought it would be ideal as we talk about church leadership, church governance, church structure, to do this with uh, all seven of our pastors here at Compass, and so it's uh, a bit of a free-for-all. We have planned this, although it may not seem that way (laughs) at certain points along the way. Well, we want to talk about, uh, about the leadership of the church. But before we do, let us uh, ask God to give us a great time together, uh, an instructive time, and then we'll set some ground rules in terms of what we're going to discuss, and then we're going to go at it. So let's pray together. God, thank you very much for our church. Thanks for Compass Bible Church. Please continue uh, to do more of what you've done in the past. Bring more people to Christ, to your Son, to real, genuine repentance and faith. Uh, let the... Uh, evangelistic voice of every highly committed participant here be bold and active in sharing the message of Christ, of substitutionary atonement, of resurrection, of repentance, of real genuine trust. Uh, God, and then just protect our church as we assemble together to learn of your word, to be growing disciples, to be willing to take up our cross every day and follow you. Uh, Let this be a great place that... uh, not only does great ministry, but where we genuinely connect together in real relationships and real Christian fellowship in a way that pleases you. May tonight's special forum that we have here be a a terrifically insightful time, a good time for our uh, just discussion about your word to result in not only uh, enlightenment and education, but let it be a great time of just edification for our church as well. So God, we commit our time now to you and ask for a, a great session together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Talk a little bit about leadership tonight. We're going to start with just a couple of quick statements about the biblical data on governance. And by that, we mean how is the church run? How is it put together in terms of leadership authority, leadership structure? And so here's a couple ground rules that we can at least jot down or think about. And this is a hard topic. Read any book. I got a whole bookshelf full of books on this topic, and you'll find. Uh, a few things that need to be summarized, and that is, number one, the Bible is very clear, the data is clear on two distinct offices. We dealt with that a little bit last week. Uh, the, um, the pastor, elder, overseer, that's one office, and the deacon, and even in the feminine form, we find it the deaconess, diakona, diakonos, we have both of those. So we've got the, the, the elders, pastors, overseers, and the deacons. Okay, two clear offices there. Uh, we have clarity on their duties. Uh, we have a lot of things that is, that is said about how the diakonos should serve and how the pastor, elder, overseers should administrate and lead and teach and care for the flock. That's clear. Uh, we have clear clarity in the scripture in terms of qualifications. What does it take to be uh, an elder, pastor, overseer? And what does it take in terms of qualifications to be a deacon or deaconess? Those are clear in scripture, an entire chapter almost in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1. So we have clarity about two distinct offices, duties of leaders, qualification of leaders. Okay? What we don't have clarity on in the New Testament is a specific structure or organization of leadership. We just don't have you know, uh, the same kind of clarity on that issue. How is this all structured? How is it uh, managed? How is it put together? Uh, how does it relate? And, and how do you function and, in terms of church decision-making and leading uh, at various levels in the church, and how is it done, the structure is, is not particularly clear. There's some description, and a lot of people write books about the things they see, 
particularly in the book of Acts, there's description as to how the church functioned and how it was organized, uh, but there's not a lot of prescription. And if you've heard any of our teaching on hermeneutics or how you interpret the Bible, we cannot turn a description into a prescription, right? Unless there's a clear principle that states it. We can't say, well, that's the way they did it, so that's the way we ought to do it. We've got to be careful about that particularly because the transitional period in the book of Acts involved this very uh, important role of the apostle. And when you have the apostolic office in the middle of the book of Acts, that makes patterns very difficult to apply. And a lot of churches have tried to do that. They look at the book of Acts, they say, well, we want to be like the book of Acts. But unfortunately, when you do that, uh, you, you struggle because most of the book of Acts is about the acts of the apostles and how they functioned in the growing concentric circles of, of, of the missionary efforts of the early church. So with that said, we've seen throughout church history and even in our day various ways the church is structured, how it's organized. We're going to talk about seven of them tonight, seven different structures of leadership We're going to look at some of the uh, reasons people come to those conclusions and uh, problems uh, with with some of them. Some of them we think clearly outside the pale of what the Scripture would even allow. Some maybe that you could say, okay, that may work, but it may not be the best application of the biblical principles that we see. So we're going to talk about those and we'll interact together on those here uh, on the stage. And uh, we're going to start with the first one that's on your worksheet. Uh, We'll call it governance model number one, a strict Pyramid, strict pyramid. What are we talking about, Mark? Yeah, and per- perhaps the maybe the, one of the most well-known models for church government is the Catholic Church. Uh, everyone knows the Pope, right? The top of the church, the head of the church there. Uh, but I want to talk just for a minute about how uh, the Catholic Church got to that point. How do they? Why do they have a Pope? How did they get to that? So turn to Matthew chapter sixteen, verse nineteen. This is a key passage for uh, for Catholic theology for uh, how the Pope has the authority he has. And the way the, the Catholic Church interprets this passage is really uh, key in, in what they're doing and why they're doing it. Matthew uh, 16, verse 18 and 19. Christ talking to Peter says, uh, And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so right there, uh, that is a major hinging point for uh, apostolic succession, because at that point, Christ, he gives Peter... Uh, all of this uh, authority says, hey, you are the head of the church, they say, and you are now the, the leader. You are in charge, and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, and uh, whatever you bind, it will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loosed. And so essentially you have the door to – you have the keys to the door to salvation. And so there, there's all of this authority given to the pope right here – or given to uh, Peter right here. And so the Catholic church then uh, says that a, a person – needs to uh, possess that position. They need to uh, perform the duties that Peter performed. And so when Peter died, there had to be someone to succeed him. And so um, I've got a quote here from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It says, The Pope, the Bishop of Rome, and Peter's successor is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. 
And so all of this authority is entrusted into one guy, Peter, and then Peter then passes it on to another guy who passes it on to another guy. And then today uh, we, ha- we have the Pope who is uh, maintaining these same responsibilities uh, today in Vatican City. Uh, another, another quote here, how they got this, uh, because really they're taking that passage from Scripture and uh, coming up with a lot based on it. And so they're having to turn to tradition and authority that's passed on from the guy who's in charge. And so the Council of Vatican, 1870, says the apostolic see and the Roman pontiff, right, so that the pope holds primacy over the whole world and that the pontiff of Rome himself is the successor of the blessed Peter and the chief of the apostles and is the true vicar of Christ and head of the whole church and the faith and teacher of all Christians. And, to the, uh, and that to him was handed down in blessed Peter by our Lord Jesus Christ, full power to feed, rule, and guide the universal church, just as also contained in the records of the ecumenical councils and in the sacred canons. And so you can kind of see that authority that's then passed on from, from person to person uh, throughout church history. And so they have this, uh, this position, and, and Pastor Mike mentioned it's in the, the form of a pyramid. So if you want to write it down that way, uh, we've got the Pope at the top of the pyramid, a hierarchy uh, of governance. And so clearly, um, by their creed, by their um, catechism, uh, by all of the councils that they've had, they've placed the Pope at the top with this sort of authority that I just read about. Underneath the Pope, we have cardinals. And so just kind of quickly going to go through each one of these uh, tiers. And the cardinals advise the Pope and, and also elect a successor upon the death of the Pope. Uh, but basically, there's just this level uh, underneath the Pope which then goes down to archbishops and bishops. We'll kind of talk about them kind of together. The archbishops just kind of rule over multiple bishops. Uh, and the bishops receive their power to rule and administer the sacraments from the pope. So they get their authority passed down from the pope. And uh, what they do, the bishops, is they're, they're ruling, they're governing, they're presiding over... Uh, um, one diocese, and a diocese is just a breakdown of multiple districts, uh, or one district rather, of multiple parishes. Uh, and then underneath them, you've got the priests, who the bishops rule over the priests, and uh, individually, the priest is uh, individually a leader over one um, parish. And so you can kind of see that distinction from bishops to priests. And I know in past Compass Nights, we've talked about. Um, the, the, the different Greek words for um, elder, uh, leader, uh, pastor. And uh, right here you can see a distinction that the Catholic Church has made uh, between the, the words that we've studied, um, episkopos, diakonos, and uh, poimen. Right? And so as we've studied, we've seen that there is um, three different terms to talk about one office, and the Catholic Church has clearly uh, come up with multiple offices right here. You've got the bishop, you've got the ruler, and then under him you've got the priest who's kind of functioning as, as a pastor shepherd would, would function. Under them you've got deacons, uh, and they are, um, they aid the priest in the mass, and uh, or they are ordained ministers of the church, and then underneath that you've got the laity. And so you can clearly, clearly see this, this hierarchy model that the Catholic Church functions under. And um, definitely 
you can see a lot of potential problems within this sort of structure. And perhaps the, the biggest problem is that there is no uh, teaching in the New Testament that says to structure your church this way. Pastor Mike was just mentioning there's, there's not that specific teaching. But not only that, is there, there's not a, um, an example of this sort of structure that we see anywhere. But given the fact that the Pope has this sort of authority, having the keys to the kingdom and having being Peter's successor, he can c- come up with the tradition and the rules, uh, which is what they have done throughout church history. And so as we get into the other um, models, I think some of the dangers that we see here are going to flesh themselves out and why the, um, this is not the best model. So all this hinges on Matthew 16, Christ's authority embodied in one person, handed off to one person. So every generation is supposed to have one solitary leader who represents Christ's authority on earth. How, how do you respond? How do any of you guys respond to someone that says, well, it's right there in Matthew 16. Uh, clearly, there needs to be a pope that is one leader above all the leaders of all the churches all over the world. How do you guys respond to apostolic succession? We respond to it by saying it never happens in the Bible. We never, you never see it anywhere, like, like Mark just said. And also, that's not what we interpret that verse to be saying that it's to one man, Peter there being the representative of the group and, and really talking about the revelation there of that of who is the Christ. That's the context of Matthew 16. So it's not saying it's one guy who's going to have all the power, who's going to pass it on. Uh, you're reading a lot into the text to assume that that is the uh, application right. and, of it. And you see, you see the Apostle Paul also um, planting churches and as he's planting churches, he's anticipating new elders, new presbyteros, new, new pastors to take over. And he has job descriptions for them. And, and clearly he has a bigger plan than just saying, hey, there's one mother church. But rather there's a, a variety of churches and they'll be ruled by elders. By Acts chapter 10, right, Peter's pretty much relegated to the background of the Acts of the Apostle. If he's the Pope, right, if we're writing real Catholic history in the book of Acts, something goes majorly wrong halfway through the book of Acts because he, you know, he's not there. And especially right. what they do as well, saying that the Pope, when he speaks ex cathedra, is infallible. Like, he, can, he cannot err as he speaks. What we think of Paul in Galatians 2 has to withstand Peter to his face because Peter's not doing something right. So how can we even make that connection that this person, when they're talking about matters of faith, was doing something that was clearly not of the faith? It, it just it doesn't make sense with their doctrine. So what is happening in Matthew 16 then? I know we don't want to belabor this. We've got a lot to cover, but I mean, what's being said there then? If it's not apostolic succession, what are the keys to the kingdom? What is that all about? Well, I think there's a couple of interpretations, isn't there? Isn't there one that is saying, hey, in the Greek, it's uh, this, you are Peter, Petros, and then there's another different one, and on this Petra, different rock bed, I'm going to build this. So the, some people say it's the confession that is the thing that is the keys to the kingdom, the confession that Christ is Lord. Others would say, well, Peter does play a major part. And like you've pointed out in Acts, in Acts 2, Peter gives the keys of the kingdom, right, the Spirit of God, to the Jews when he preaches on Pentecost. The, the, the Spirit doesn't go to the Gentiles until Peter shows up, right, in Acts 10. So it's a difference of opinion, but it could be either one of those two, unless there's a third option. that I'm... Which one are you? I'm, a, I'm the second one. I'm oh. the second one. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's move on. We've got... Uh, Apparently that was wrong. <laughs> That's why we're moving on. Oh, I thought that was a good answer, so I think we should move on. Let's talk about the loose, 
the loose pyramid, which is, uh, you know, they were just kind of homemade labels here, but... Uh, I, I got the loose pyramid? You have the loose pyramid. Wow. He had the tight pyramid. Well, you know, it's, you it, have the loose, the loose pyramid. pyramid is, talk about there, that. There's not much of a pyramid, so let's go on to the next person, right? Oh, okay. So one of, the, one of the best examples of the loose pyramid is the Orthodox Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. And, and many of us don't know a lot about the Orthodox Church. And so seeing that the structure is rather loose, I just want to tell you a little bit about the history of the Orthodox Church because it, it worked right along the Roman Catholic line uh, that Mark was just talking about. Just a, a couple of simple facts there. Right now in the world, there are about 300 million ad- adherents to uh, the Orthodox Church. Of that, probably about four and a half million of those people are here uh, in the United States. You've heard probably of Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox, uh, and there's a reason for that uh, we'll go into in a moment. Orthodox, first of all, ortho means straight, right, or, or right, and doxa, doxa means, uh, means glory. Uh, it can also mean belief, but it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a right glory or right belief is where this comes from. Now, the roots of it, where, uh, where Mark was just talking a little bit about Matthew, uh, the roots of the Orthodox faith biblically will be found in Acts, in the book of Acts chapter 11, uh, verses 25 through 30. You don't need to turn there. I can, I can just give you the paraphrase of what's happened. Uh, here, you're going to find Paul and Barnabas, and they're going to plant a church in, in Antioch. Uh, and in Antioch, they plant this church, and the Orthodox people look at Antioch as a, as a very important city because of this text. Matter of fact, uh, at the early church, Antioch, Jerusalem, the church of James, and Alexandria, and Constantinople, and Rome were the four or five big churches or big seas of that time period. And here in Acts chapter 11, uh, you'll find that, again, Barnabas and Paul uh, are starting a brand new work, a brand new church, and church planting is, is beginning. Um, fast forwarding a little bit in history, eventually what happens, you know, uh, we were talking a little bit, Mark was, about Roman Catholicism. So we have bishops of Rome that are following in the order of Peter. Uh, now we have also bishops that will be in Constantinople. Rome, uh, Rome falls and becomes the old Rome, and Constantinople becomes the new Rome. And uh, in the New Rome, we have all of these church councils that become very important in the Orthodox faith. There are seven of them. Uh, in 325 A.D., you may have heard of the Nicene Council, uh, which was an argument about the deity of Christ between uh, uh, a man uh, by the name of Athanasius who took the, uh, the, the side of, yeah, Jesus Christ is, uh, is truly uh, of God. And, uh, and what happens in this council is, is vitally important. And there are other councils that happen that form a lot of the beliefs of the Orthodox faith. Uh, when Constantine becomes the emperor, uh, like I said, we have an old Rome and a new Rome. In the new Rome, Greek is the language, and the old Rome, Latin is the language. Uh, Byzantine Empire, if you've heard that, basically builds itself out of Constantinople, the Hagia Sophia, if you've been there, some of us have been there from the footsteps of Paul trip that we took, becomes the new national church at that time. Now, the Orthodox Church, after 1453, or prior to that, rather, there's a schism that happens in 1054 between the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox Church. Until that time, the Orthodox and the Roman Catholics were living together in the Old Rome, New Rome order. And the schism caused because of a dispute in the Holy, about the Holy Spirit, but mostly about power and who is really in control of the church, uh, takes the church and breaks it apart. 
You have Leo IX coming all the way with his emissaries to uh, Constantinople, and what they do is they excommunicate the entire Orthodox Church, and likewise the Orthodox uh, excommunicate all the Roman Catholics. And so you have this hierarchy that, uh, that Mark was just talking about in, uh, in, in church governments, very, very different in the Orthodox Church. Uh, matter of fact, when Constantinople falls in 1453, the Orthodox movement moves into Bulgaria and Russia and uh, a lot of uh, Eastern Europe and Asia. And uh, what happens is, is that instead of having a pope, this whole time there's a patriarch. There's a patriarch of Constantinople. And that patriarch, instead of being in the line of uh, Paul or in the line of Peter, is in the line of Andrew. And uh, that is who their patriarch is named after, is Andrew, Peter's brother. And uh, if you look back at the history of all the patriarchs, you'll find them in the line of, of Andrew. Now, there's a lot of similarities between all of the churches because their liturgy is the same. What's different most of the time is their languages. But their liturgy and their beliefs are fairly similar. And what that allows for, it allows for a whole different structure, a loose structure. You really have three different folks uh, that are involved in the Orthodox Church. One are bishops. Now here, bishops, it's important to note that bishops in the Orthodox faith are celibate. They can never marry. They, they are definitely, you know, just directed and uh, committed to their role serving Christ in the Orthodox Church. And wh what they do is they just oversee a territory. That's all they do. They see, oversee a group of people and a group of churches. And they're responsible for making sure traditions and the practices of the church are preserved. You know, the authority in the Orthodox Church is in the Bible, which includes the Apocrypha, uh, the seven ecumenical councils, also councils of, of, uh, of the fathers of the church, and, and holy traditions of the church. So those are all equally authoritative. But what's different is, is different than Mark was talking about. You notice that the patriarch of Constantinople doesn't speak ex-cathedra. He is not in the same role as the pope is. He doesn't have that kind of authority. Matter of fact, uh, what, we, uh, what, we, what we think about him is he's just a, he is just a regular guy. We say he's a first among equals. That bishop is no different than any other bishop uh, that's around the world even today. So that's really what the bishop does. So the bishop oversees a small territory of churches, and in those churches, he, you know, the one bishop cannot over, override another bishop in an area. Uh, they just have a very local and provincial role in, the, in their church. And again, if the patriarch in Constantinople says something, uh, the rest of the local little churches are not obliged really to follow that, uh, that teaching at all. Now, the second, uh, the second level are priests, priests. Now, here priests can marry. Uh, they're responsible for doing individual work in the church. They do the preaching, uh, the all pastoral duties. Uh, the, uh, they issue the sacraments to their people. And, uh, and again, very, very localized and, uh, and usually smaller than the churches that you're aware of. Uh, and, uh, and, again, very pastoral. That's what they do. The third level and the final level inside this format is they're called deacons. And the deacons are always lay-driven uh, lay people or people in the organization or in the church itself, rather, 
that, uh, that come and they are helping and assisting the pastor uh, with some of the pastoral duties, but really responsible for a lot of, uh, a lot of administrative functions. So you can see that this is, this is way, way different than what Mark was talking about in Roman Catholicism. Uh, two ancient faiths in the schism in 1054 and go in completely different directions. One with a lot of hierarchy and, and a huge pyramid, and the Orthodox faith rather localized. And again, their bishops uh, overseeing small territories, and inside that the priests doing pastoral work, and the priests are assisted by lay-driven deacons. Matter of fact, uh, because Pastor Elliot asked me to, and all the Thrive people are here, I even brought a picture of, well, here is letters. the official patriarch, are you ready, of uh, Constantinople, <coughs> and uh, there he is, wow. Bartholomew I, and we're challenging Pastor Elliot to start growing a beard, and we're confident that perhaps in two years, it. maybe with a little bit of dye and a little bit of age, he might look just like that. Only if I get that gold medallion as well, check that thing out. <laughs> That's a pretty nice medallion. Carry around a light bulb on a stick, too, like that. Yeah. <laughs> Represents all your great ideas that you have. I do. Yeah. I, have, I have many of them. I have many of them. It's awesome. How many of you pastors have ever gone to, like, a coffee shop and just struck up a conversation, talked to someone, told them you were a pastor, and they asked if you could get married or not? Have you ever had that? No, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That yeah. happens all the time. Yeah. Just reminiscing. Not all the time, but yeah. Thanks for a sharing majority that story. Of that was awesome. Yeah. This usually gives them a hint that I'm married. Well, I've got an iPhone, so I'll show them a picture of my wife, and then they know that I'm married. <laughs> In terms of loose versus... <laughs> Changing the subject. Just didn't say that. Tight. Like, if we, said, if we were going to start, you know, Roman Catholic Church of, of Aliso, and we just said, well, we're going to start that, we're going to definitely get a call from the Diocese of Orange uh, if we try to do that. What if we said, oh, we're going to start, uh, you know, Orthodox Church of, of Aliso Viejo. Um, I mean, how tight is, is, is the structure to say, well, wait a minute, you know, you're not, you're not officially an Orthodox Church. Um, I mean, compare those two scenarios. Yeah, you're, you're going to definitely have to check in with the, with the Antiochian uh, Synod that's here in the area. And uh, if they approve of you and if the pastors are, are, or the priests are of the qualifications, and yeah, you could easily start something. It's way different than perhaps starting your own Roman Catholic church. Now, this is a detailed, detailed question, if, and you may or may not know this, um, which was a throwaway line, because there's no need for me to say that. <laughs> I hope you'll I either know it or you won't. Um, in terms of, of property acquisition, okay, let's say we're all approved by Antioch and we're going to acquire property. Uh, what relationship does the oversight of the church have to helping us acquire or funding property? Do you know the answer? I'm going to throw that away. Okay. Because oh, right. <laughs> I don't know the answer. Don't know the answer. Question. All right. Uh, governance model number three. Do you know the answer? I don't. Oh. I thought Pete had studied it more than me this week, and we might have an answer to that. I'm interested in acquiring property for Compass Bible Church. I am church. too. Yeah. yeah that's, that's something I'm interested in. We don't have to call anybody for that. Uh, model number three, who has that? I do. Oh, awesome. I do. Yeah, we've got model number three. It's known as the ziggurat model. That's what we just call it. You've got to understand, these terms are not used beyond the borders of Compass Bible Church. Pyramid, yeah. loose pyramid, ziggurat. You won't find you won't, that in a systematic theology. No books that I've ever read have that, but I thought it was a cute way to well, put it. We all it. know what the ziggurat is because it's just yeah, down the road. That's a right. localized 
localized analogy. Just down the road to help you guys. So uh, Presbyterianism, right? It, it's a... Wait a minute. Do they know what a ziggurat is? You all know what a ziggurat is? Pyramid with a top cut off. Demonstrate it. What is it? Well, you know, I, I, you, you, do you not put a picture of a right, ziggurat? Right, here we go. Here's a ziggurat. Looks like a pyramid to me. Right. We're at a fall one. All right. So we've got the Presbyterian model, which would be known as what we would call a ziggurat model, and the way that it functions. And it's going to function differently than these two that we've looked at before, which is the Roman Catholic Church and the Episcopal Church, because this was really something that, if you take a look at church history, that was really a reaction from uh, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Reformers were able to start it. But just to give you a little heads up on kind of what's going on here with the whole structure, the General Assembly, that's the, that's the big deal. That's the, the final court of appeal when you get to the... Uh, uh, the Presbyterian Church, and the General Assembly is made up of, of elders uh, from the Presbytery. The Presbytery is made up from elders from each of the sessions, and each session is representative of a local church. So these sessions right here, this, this E, is talking about the different elders that look over a congregation, a specific local congregation. But they are connected in a presbytery right here with other Presbyterian churches in a, in a, in a district. And I, tried to, I don't know for sure what marks it off. Uh, I think I saw a number like it has to be 10 churches or something like that to make up a, a presbytery. But each session has elders, and they're going to meet and vote together on putting people in the presbytery. These presbyteries are going to vote and put people in the General Assembly. And the General Assembly will pass things down like doctrine, what we're going to do with mission. What, I think I was even looking on the website, you know, the Hurricane Sandy came through, how we're going to help people. That's coming down from the top, the top down to the people. But what they do right in this is that they recognize that no... No power belongs to one man. It's going to be a plurality of people who are going to have this. And so these elders are divided into two, two different elders. We've got teaching elders who are those that would teach the word of God or give the sacraments. And those are usually put in office and ordained by other uh, people from the presbytery. That's not something that people are usually going to vote on from a congregation. But if you notice, this congregation right here is connected to the session because they, they, they vote on the, the second half of the elders. We've got the teaching elders and we've got the ruling elders, which are coming from the congregation that the people vote on. And they come together and usually there's one or, or more of those from the congregation that work together. But they're not going to teach. The ruling elders are not going to teach. They're going to look over the administration, maybe the spiritual life of the church. And the guy who gets up and speaks on Sunday is going to be the teaching elder or the the one who uh, d does the sacraments, does the word uh, baptism and Lord's Supper and things like that. So it's kind of, it's weird because it, it's a top-down model, but really the ruling elders who come from here, they're chosen from the congregation, which is a kind of a different story, and we'll get to congregations in a second. Um, but as I said, uh, this came from, it was a response from the reformers uh, to, to the Roman Catholic Church or a, a, an Episcopalian-type model. Because they, they recognize that in the scriptures, when it's talking about the episkopos, the poimen, you know, the presbyteros, those are the same people. So we want to have those people be in office and, and have authority. We're not dissecting between those. It's the same person. So they recognize that. That's a good thing. It was really started uh, mostly by John Calvin. Uh, this is a quote from Roger Olson who says, Presbyterianism is the form of church government favored by Calvin and brought to Scotland by John Knox because Knox and Calvin uh, had a, a brief period of time together in Geneva. Calvin influenced Knox. He took it over to Scotland. And that's why you have a lot of Scottish people who came over to the United States bringing Presbyterianism uh, over here. So that's kind of where it was in church history. But they would argue, hey, this is very biblical. It's not just happened because of the Reformers. This happened in Scripture. 
Robert Raymond, who's a systematic theologian who uh, advocates this Presbyterian type of government, says, beyond the governance of local churches by elders, which is good, that's what we want, local churches by elders, he says it's important to note also that New Testament churches were connected or bound together by a common government. The principle, that's the key word right there, the principle of mutual accountability, dependency, and submission among the churches is taught in several places in Scripture, okay? That, that phrase right there, bound together, that's a, that's a very, that's an overarching statement, I would say. Like Pastor Mike said, we want to look for the principle, we want to find principles in narrative text, but the text that they're going to go for are mostly in the book of Acts, and they're all making these pr- principles off of these things, and it just seems like a far-reaching uh, implication. So, the biblical support that they have, they say, ultimately, primary, is Acts chapter 15. And if you've got your Bibles, why don't you f- turn over to Acts chapter 15 to see this. Acts 15. You know the story, uh, if you've been with us in the DBR, going through it, it's... Uh, Acts 15.1, this is the Jerusalem council when Paul and uh, Barnabas end up going to Jerusalem to discuss something. But far from being a, a top-down model that they're trying to say is a, is a government governance that should take place, you really see some principles we should apply, but not in the way they're going to say it. Look at this, uh, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders with this question. So that's what we have here. We've got a situation where people came from Judea coming to Antioch and they were teaching a different gospel. This is a salvation issue, okay? This is people coming in and saying salvation is not by grace through faith. Salvation is you believing and then getting circumcised and doing the things of Moses. So this is not a a form of church governance. This is a gospel issue. So the principle you want to take from this text is not, hey, uh, they went to Jerusalem and that was the hierarchy because that's where the apostles and the elders were and they passed things down. Uh, what, what we should notice, and a good principle is, is, hey, if you hear somebody from another church say a gospel is different than the gospel we have, well, then you should go to that church and, and check and say, hey, if you're going to say you're a part of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and he's the head of the church and he said this is what the gospel is, you've got to make sure that they're teaching that. That's a principle you can take from it. But you can't take a government-type deal where there's a general assembly who's going to pass down this doctrine and the people underneath have to believe it. That's reading too far into the text. And so I've got some objections uh, that I'd like to say. So it's, I think this, this type of government is a misunderstanding of pastoral-slash-elder leadership. I think it really is. Because to say that a general assembly that's disconnected from a local church has authority over it I just don't think you see that in that text in, um, in Acts chapter 15, and we'll get to that in a moment. You look at the, the, what we're going to look at with Lucas later on. Elders were appointed over local bodies, specific governing churches, to make sure that they watched over a certain group of people. We don't have it in the pastoral epistles or any of the other epistles saying, hey, make sure you check with your general assembly to make sure that this is okay. It's pastors invested with the authority looking over the people. And I think a key thing, too, is when you get to Hebrews thirteen seventeen, the people are to obey and submit to their leaders, not 
the general assembly, the, the leaders that are in front of them. And how I know it's the leaders that are in front of them? Because it asks them to imitate their faith. I would be hard-pressed to imitate the faith of someone who's in a general assembly who I may have never even met before. But the Bible's saying that the people underneath the pastors and the elders are to imitate their faith because they have a connection with them. There's a local governing body over them. So I think they have a misunderstanding of what um, a pastor elder is supposed to be doing. Next, I think it's a misunderstanding, as Pastor Mike said earlier, of biblical interpretation, saying that something that's described, when we're in narrative text, it's just describing what's going on. I mean, my, my point to them, I could come to them and say, well, hey, in Acts chapter 1, to replace Judas, they cast lots. Why aren't you guys casting lots? Well, because we don't take everything that's described. We just, we look for the principle, and we want to find it and find the principle. And I think the principle in Acts 15 is to say, hey, Gospel unity, absolutely, among local churches. And if someone's teaching a different gospel, go confront them. But if not, you, have no, you don't have to bow to a higher authority. I found this really good. This is Louis Burkhoff, who actually promotes Presbyterianism. He really does. But he says, Scripture does not contain an explicit command to the effect that local churches of a district must form an organic union. In fact, it represents the local churches as individual entities without any external bond of union. And I'm thinking, okay, that's, that's exactly right. So why are we wasting time with the presbytery and the general assemblies if that's what the New Testament is telling us? So I think that they, they misinterpret uh, the Bible. And finally, uh, I think they misunderstand the role of the apostles. I mean, the reason why they're going to Jerusalem is that's where the apostles are. These people came down from Judea. And the apostles are, are going to start making some decrees because they've been infest, invested with the authorities. We don't have apostles today. There's no apostles, as we've learned. There's no apostolic accession, succession. So uh, I think it's a misunderstanding to have that. So Burkhoff, again, Presbyterian supporter, says this. The Council of Jerusalem was composed of apostles and elders and therefore did not constitute a proper example or pattern of a synod in the modern sense of the word. So what was actually going on, they say in Acts 15, is not a, it's not a proper example of what goes on in what we have today. So I think it's, I think it's wrong to take that form uh, of governance. So that's why I think it, it's, it's not heretical to do it this way, but I don't think that you have to go as far as they say that this is, this is the biblical model. Yeah, and even the apostle part, when we have the writings of the apostle, which I'm sure all of us on this stage and probably a lot of people in the... In the congregation have done, and we confront a leader of another church, or even a person from another church, or if you have the whole congregation to confront the whole congregation of another church, when I bring the scripture, I'm bringing the apostolic word to them. Absolutely. And that is a lot of what we see going on in what the picture in the book of Acts is, is the apostolic word and authority going over other churches. I mean, I've sat there and talked to heretical, you know, cult leaders at my door, leaders of churches, and, you know, I come to rebuke them with the apostolic authority. In that regard, I do have authority over that church. Right. Only because I stand with the apostles. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, that apostolic reality confuses a lot of people. And I think you've made a good point in that this is, we wouldn't call this heretical, right? Our Presbyterian brothers in Christ, we're not saying, hey, this is a heretical issue. We're just saying we don't believe that's the best interpretation of the text and application of the text right. in church leadership. As a matter of fact, all of these, I guess we could start to say, you, you could, I suppose, uh, because it's a secondary issue, not question one's salvation based on governance. Right. We, would, we would question someone's salvation in a, in a pyramid structure 
uh, because of the doctrine of the church, sure. right? Not, not the fact that you know, your leadership structure is all wrong, right? The problem is when the leadership structure starts to say things that are unbiblical, or as in the Catholic Church, that the top of this pyramid speaks with equal authority to the Scripture. Then when those conflict, who, who wins? Right. And, and, and the problem is in any structure or any group, when two authorities exist, the one that conflicts with Scripture always wins in those groups. And right? one of the main dangers that you see from this thing is that, and this can, uh, this can happen in any model, I understand that, but when we go for the New Testament model of the elders being over a local body, if something goes wrong with that doctrine of that church, it affects that, that body. And yes, it does affect the universal church in a sense. But when we have general assemblies that go wrong, then they pass that down through a whole bunch of channels. And that can be very, very dangerous. It's like a you know, spreading of a disease that goes so quickly that you can't even stop it. So it becomes very dangerous. And so one last point, Ephesians 2.20 shows us that apostles, their foundation of the church, we don't use them anymore. So we, we, we're not going to use any example uh, of them when we're talking about church governance. And I think one other good thing to add, when you're driving down the street and you see you know, Presbyterian on a church sign, mm-hmm. in, especially in the United States, yeah. the, they're not uniform and there are different within the u.s there are a lot of different strains of presbyterianism and so yeah they all have a similar structure in their governance but even some of those strains would teach completely different absolutely doctrines i mean they have very liberal ones that would say you know you know women who can come in and do that stuff they have different yeah absolutely sex there are some that would teach a biblical gospel absolutely right right, but they share a governance model that's similar right absolutely Who's this going to? Don't hog the clicker. Ah, I do it at home, you too. You did. Wow. You did have that nice, apparently you do have the light bulb on a stick already with that yeah, little This is like a lightsaber. Out. I love this thing. That's right. Don't shine that in our eyes. I'm not going to give it back to you, Pastor Mike, just so you know. <laughs> hey, Pastor Elliot, are you done? I am done, Bob. Awesome. Let's, let's move on to governance model number four. All right? This is where we're coming to America, everybody. America right here. Is that right? how the preach-off went when I was gone? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. how it went. Yeah, they cut <laughs> heated that time. Did you, you say, are you done? It was, it was tough times? to speak. Yeah. It was tough to speak. It was tough um, stuff. America, anybody here vote for in this nation on, uh, on Tuesday, <laughs> right? Right? So you uh, were enjoying an uh, aspect of our democracy or uh, the right that the power goes to the people. Right, And so now we're going to start talking about a form of governance here where we kind of go the complete opposite direction of some kind of hierarchy and where the people of the church possess the power. So autonomous, we're talking about an independent church. It's not a part of a denomination. It's not a part of a bigger coalition of churches. It's its own church. And democratic means that the people get to vote. Uh, and, and really, the history of this kind of model of church kind of does parallel the history of America. It's even specifically a move away from the Church of England and maybe some corruption there. And so now people can kind of have their own church. And you know a lot of these kind of churches where everybody's going to vote, they're even going to have a constitution, right? And then they're going to get a membership. And when they have a quorum of the membership, they can vote, Right? And I'm sure that some of you are a little cautious this week about what the people can do with a nation, right? (laughs) So you can start to see here, when you empower the people, they can run with it whatever direction they want. And so really we call this, uh, what we're going to call this is congregationalism, is is really Mm -hmm. the most common term 
for this kind of church. Congregationalism, where the people in the congregation have the power to vote what is going to happen to the church. This can even get down to details like what color the carpet is going to be in the church is going to be voted on by the people of the church. It can get down to that level. Now, there are some leading proponents of this kind of church governance in in evangelicalism today, and they would probably not appreciate us referring to them as democratic, because that doesn't sound very uh, biblical, and they would not um, use that language, okay? But that's definitely what we're going to call it, all right? Um, but, the, but let me give you what their biblical reasoning is as to why they would give the vote to the people. I think right away you can see voting, that's a kind of a modern, even very American idea. Constitutions, this is all very recent in world history that we would come to these kind of conclusions. But they have some biblical backing as to why they say this. And they start in Matthew 16, 18 to 19, just like we did earlier. And then they also refer to Matthew 18. So if you could grab your Bible once you're done kind of writing that down and go to Matthew chapter 18 with me. Um, This is like a direct opposite interpretation of what we already talked about. The Roman Catholic Church is saying that he's giving the power to Peter, one man, an individual, and that's why they started the Pope. Here's a complete opposite interpretation that the power is going to all people. Every Christian has the keys. Every Christian is able to bind in in the power of heaven. That's the interpretation that they're bringing to Matthew 16. And if you go over to Matthew 18, you'll probably recognize this passage as a passage we use when confronting someone in sin. And just read through it here with me. Matthew 18, verse 15. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So there we see that same binding power. And they're, they're going to look at this passage, and the phrase that the congregationalist will pull out of this passage is that phrase, tell it to the church. If you're taking notes, you want to write that down. Because they're going to say, look at that phrase right there. That means the church is the one that has the authority. The church gets to decide what we're going to do with somebody who's in sin, and they're not repenting of their sin. So the church is now basically in charge of who we're going to discipline out of the church and who we're going to allow to keep in. We're going to vote about matters now uh, of church discipline just because of that one phrase tell it to the church which we would not agree with that we would say that the people who are telling it to the church the the pastors elders overseers they're the ones who have the authority and they're just bringing the church in on it and what's really confusing to me is congregationalists will agree with that interpretation of matthew 18 but then not abide by it and say that the church has the authority. So the, it's just one phrase. Tell it to the church. They're building, they're building their whole kind of thinking here on little phrases like that. Another place 
we find a phrase is in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, verse 3. This is the part where the widows aren't getting fed, and the apostles are saying, hey, we've got to devote ourselves to the word and prayer. We can't go around and, and feed the widows here. You guys have to pick out from among you, choose from yourselves, some men who can be in charge of the daily distribution of bread to the widows. So here's again a story, an account in the book of Acts, and they're pulling this principle out and saying, see, the people have the power. Well, I think you can just look at that story and say, who said to pick out from among you? That's the person who had the authority. Here's some other references they would use. 1 Corinthians 5.12 would say to judge those in the church, and you wouldn't even eat with someone who is in sin. So you must have the authority if you're not going to eat with someone who is in sin. And that's clearly something that we're all going to probably be called to do at some point in our Christian life. We're going to know someone who is in sin. They're not, not repenting of their sin. We're going to have to stop associating with them. We're not going to have to not even have fellowship with them. But that doesn't mean that we have the authority of the church. Second Corinthians 2, 6 is the same exact idea, punishment by the majority. That's that same idea of we're cutting off association with people in sin. Um, they're using that to say that the people of the church have the authority of the church. One more reference, which really is the most confusing one to me, is they just put Galatians chapter 1, where he says, if anybody's telling you a different gospel, let them be accursed. And that's supposed to mean that the people have the authority to somehow determine the doctrine of the church by just saying, be discerning. If somebody's telling you a different gospel, reject it. They're using that to say, you have the authority. Let's vote on the carpet, which I don't see the, uh, the connection there. Here's what the leading, uh, we, we, a guy that we would have respect for as a Christian thinker and pastor and leader in our day and age. He's a congregationalist. Here's what he would say to describe congregationalism. This is the leading congregationalist of our day. He says, the portrayal of congregationalism in the New Testament is quite quite an incomplete picture. We get it in snatches, asides, and assumptions. I don't know about you, but I don't want to base my uh, church governance on assumptions or asides or little snatches of phrases in the New Testament. So even though this is a very popular idea in America, where we're going to give the people the power to vote, they're trying to make a biblical case for this. And obviously, I find this case lacking. I don't see it to be a convincing reason as to why we would do this kind of governance in our church. Uh, when you were studying this, did you see, I mean, any examples overseas? I, I, I'm trying to think of a, an overseas example outside of the United States that would even... I don't know of any examples right. of, of a pattern of churches having constitutions and people voting right. outside of America. I mean, when you look into the history, it's definitely a part of a breakaway from right. England is yeah. where the beginning of this kind of governance comes from. So it sounds very American, but maybe not very biblical. Yeah, I think in missiology, though, you'll find when Americans will plant churches overseas, okay, yeah, you, know, okay, you yeah. will find you know, them trying to set up constitutional forms of, of voting governments in those churches. But those are also the interesting church models that you find where they try to get them a Hammond organ and they give them hymnals. I mean, they, they're, they're bringing wholesale the culture of American church right. to these uh, foreign lands. But yeah, it's certainly, uh, certainly birthed out of an American democratic viewpoint. Um, yeah. Aren't, aren't these constitutions kind of designed to protect the church and protect the leadership? Yeah, and you can see that because we've come from most of the concern being this hierarchy, right? External authority. 
Now when you say we're not going to have any external authority, now we're going to say, let, let, you know, this, this will protect us from, from authority. And that's, you know, fits so well with American, you know, culture and American values. Uh, and, and that's why the Baptist congregationalistic model has, has prevailed in our culture. People like it. I want to have a voice. Every person gets to vote. We're all empowered. We all have, you know, equality. The one thing that we can't, it would be failure if we didn't at least mention it. Uh, one of the theological places they go for congregationalism is the priest or the believer. Right? They'll say, if you looked at these models that we've talked about, you, you find the word priest creeping back into it. Right? You see bishop, archbishop. You know, we start to see how, okay, they've taken the words episcopos, appointment, and presbyteros and split them apart, and they built a structure. But one word that keeps creeping in is priest. And when priest creeps in, See, that, that it usually is a kind of, of, of mentality that takes us back to the Old Testament, where even as we read in our daily Bible reading today, I think it was, that the priest mediated between God and man. Sure. And see, and when we look at the New Testament, we don't have a priesthood anymore because we all have access to God. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about, in large part. And if we don't have to go through a man, see, then we get rid of that concept of that mediator, and now we all have access to God. Some people have taken that theological truth regarding our access to God and said, let's now pattern that in the government of the church. Right. And that's a disconnect. See, that's a non sequitur. That doesn't follow. Right. It, it's absolutely true that we have access to God. We don't need a mediator. Right. But now to go and talk about church structure and say, well, okay, then, then there's no leaders in the church. We have a democratic church or at least some democratic republic in the church. I mean, that doesn't follow. We have to try and build our church governance on what we find in terms of principle in the New Testament. And that's perhaps a, another reason why eschatology is an important thing to study because eschatology and ecclesiology can come together in this mindset, understanding that what Israel was and what they did is different than the church, which is a different organism from it, and they're not combined. So we're never going to make that mistake. And then another thing about the priesthood, right? The priests in the Old Testament, they would do the sacrifices. They would do some of the teaching as well. But they they got to understand that when we say priesthood of believers, not everyone comes up and gives the sermon, right? right? There is still a separate office. There's someone who has the authority when they're speaking the word. Right. So if we're going to go back to kind of that question you asked earlier about who could, you know, who could purchase a property, take a practical issue like that, right? So if we're going back to a hierarchy like the Roman Catholic Church, if I want to purchase a property, i got to go back to a kind of up in the organization. Mm -hmm. In the congregational model, if you want to purchase a property or probably even do something to your current property, you've got to have a vote. And to get a vote, you've got to get a quorum of people. You've got to call a, a business meeting. So you can see how we really have to slow down the progress of the church to have these votes. And we have to get so many people there. It can really actually slow down the process of the church by, by doing these votes. So that is uh, congregationalism. And it only works in its purest form in very small congregations. I mean, that's where it actually can function when we are going to make decisions about everything. You know, we'll all get together every weekend after church, and we can vote on everything. And, and I've seen that at work. But it, it starts to fall apart when you apply it in a church that gets over 75, 150. Now, all of a sudden, you say, well, we don't want to vote on everything. So you guys can make those decisions. And we begin to build some kind of, you know, republic representative democracy there. But uh, in its purest form, right, the, the concept of congregationalism, everybody should vote on any decision that relates to the congregation. I mean, that's in its purest form. So, All right, model number five. Uh, next, model number five is autonomous lay 
led, autonomous lay led. And when you see the word lay, well, we're kind of talking about lay elders, this group of laymen, guys that work. They're not in full-time ministry, but they comprise this elder board that is going to lead the church. And if you, if you go into a lot of places in the United States of America that end in Bible church, like we're used to here at Compass Bible Church, you walk into a lot of those places, eventually you're going to encounter the, the elder board, this group that is that is leading the church. It's, it's very common. And the good thing is we're, we're talking about elders, which we're going to see clearly even more and have seen that when we look at the explicit commands of Scripture, what Pastor Mike's already talked about. God ordains this office of, of, of elders, so at least that's a good thing. But what we're going to see is not everything that says, that, oh, this is elder-led, is exactly as the Bible would, would define it. Um, and also not even every church that would claim, you know, has an elder board would really even truly be elder-led. I would note that probably elder-lay, elder-led churches and congregationalism often blend because when the church gets bigger, well, then they're going to basically elect elders to lead, to lead the church. But, and one, and one other thing is that it's not uniform in, by any sense, that every lay-led church, it runs the same way. You could go to five different churches that are run by a lay board and they could all have a slightly different different variation. So there's it's hard to make blanket statements about lay-led churches. So instead of blanket statements, I'm going to give you three questions to consider where well, you'd have to almost take it at a church-by-church church basis on, is this church and the way they're setting up elders, is this the same way that the Bible would instruct a church to set up elders? So the first, um, the first question that I'm going to give you is, is this. Is there an unbiblical distinction between pastors and elders? And uh, if you want to look at it, you, we'll look at a verse that's going to help us here in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. Because in a lot of these churches, there is going to be a distinction between the elders and the pastors, or in many cases in churches like this, the pastor, singular. And sometimes it'll... It, it, like I said, it'll be set up a variety of ways where maybe you know, you've got a pastor and he's a part of the elder team, but then you've got a lot of elders that aren't pastors. In some churches, there'll be totally different groups where you have kind of the board of elders and the pastor or the pastors. And in some churches, they're kind of concentric circles where there, there's some overlap, but then there are some that, that wouldn't. Um, and basically, this is these distinctions, are we wouldn't find it anywhere in the Bible. We've We've mentioned kind of some terms, which especially for those of you that haven't been coming to Compass Night will be helpful to review. Three terms in the Bible for pastors and elders. One is episkopos, which is translated usually overseer or bishop. And if you're looking at that Greek word episkopos and you're thinking that sounds familiar, episcopal, you know, kind of coming from that word. The, the next word would be poimen, which is usually translated shepherd or pastor and the third word would be presbyteros which is translated elder and if you're like presbyteros that sounds familiar yeah pastor Elliot talking about presbyterian you can see where they got these words from and if you look at these words in the bible it's clear that they're not describing three separate offices they're describing the same thing and if you open to first peter five you're going to see that right there as it says, so I exhort the elders, and the Greek word there is presbyteros, among you, as a fellow elder, presbyteros, shepherd, 
poimano, form of the word poimen, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, or episkopos. So you see all three of these words are synonymous and interchangeable when they're used in the New Testament. There's no verse that you could go to in the New Testament, Testament that's going to say, oh, a poimen are these, are these people, and a presbyteros, they do this. It's, they're words that mean the same thing. I mean, a helpful illustration, maybe. Think of a, a university here in, in the United States. Think of, think of a faculty member. Well, you could probably call him doctor, because he probably has a PhD, him or her. You could call him professor, or more generically, you could say they're a teacher. I mean, even if you were talking to them, in, in the course of two sentences, you could say, Dr. So-and-so, I so appreciated you as a professor in college, because I really appreciated the way you you taught. And there you've used all three of those words, and you're not describing, oh, doctors, professors, and teachers. They're all describing the one man doing the one thing. Very similar in the New Testament, these words are all describing one person or one group of people that are doing one and the same thing. So when churches are going to divide elders and pastors, they're making a distinction that is not made in the Bible. And if we want to think about, well, then why is that done Again, very similar to the congregationalism, it's maybe more kind of tied up in an American mindset where we, we want a balance of powers. You know, we want the elders and, and the pastors just like we want a, a Senate and a House of Representatives so they can kind of keep each other in check. Or sometimes it's just more of a, a corporate model where basically you've got the elder board who are the board of directors and the pastor who is the CEO and he reports to them and th- those structures, you- you're not going to find those anywhere in the Bible. So first, you, you want to ask: look at a church that's claiming, "Oh, we're-, we're led by elders," or we have a lay elder board, and just just look at it and say, "Are they drawing a distinction between the elders and the pastors?" Because the Bible is using those words to describe one office. The second question to ask would be: Are the elders qualified? Are the elders? Qualified, And you're going to want to write down next to that 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, which clearly spells out the qualifications for somebody that's going to be an elder in a church. And some of them are going to be familiar to you. They need to be above reproach. They need to be the husband of one wife. They need to manage their own household well because if they can't do that, how are they going to manage the church of God? And one One key qualification that I'd write you down that I would say is one of the most often forgotten qualification in churches that are going to have a a lay elder board is the qualification that the elder needs to be able to teach. Everyone in the church that is going to be a a presbyteros needs to be able to teach people God's word. That's an important qualification that you can't skip over, but I think in a lot of American churches, you're going to find, well, this guy, he's on the school board of the church, of the school that our church runs, so he's going to be on the elder board. This guy, his family's been in the church since it started, so he's going to be on the elder board. This guy's a really good businessman. He knows he's got a lot of business savvy, so he's going to be on there. When the Bible's saying, are they blameless? Are they above reproach? And then clearly, are they able to teach people God's word? So that's, uh, and also some of these churches you're going to find, they might not have the same standards of of putting a guy on the elder board than when they're going to hire a pastor or something like that. And there shouldn't be a lower level of qualifications. Well, yeah, you can be an elder, but then to be a pastor, you've got to be this. No, 
We never see that. In Scripture, the qualifications that are given are one and the same. Everyone is held to the same standard. So if you're looking at a church that claims, oh, we're led by lay elders, you want to look and see, well, are they, is everyone there calling an elder really biblically qualified? And one specific qualification you're going to want to check is, are they all able to teach? And then third, it's not just what the elders, you know, what they are able to do or qualified to do. It's what are they actually doing? So are the elders doing their God-given job? Especially as we looked in First Peter, we see they have a responsibility to shepherd the congregation. And Pastor Lucas is going to go into that more, so I'm not going to describe all what that God-given job looks like, but I'm going to say the way eldership looks like in a lot of American churches, you know, coming to a monthly board meeting is not really maybe qualifying as what the Bible is calling shepherding the congregation, teaching, discipling, doing, doing all these things that the Bible would expect a leader in the church to do. And really, these, these three questions go back just to the beginning of the night. If you remember the th- some of the basic things, we don't know. The Bible doesn't clearly spell out the church structure, but it does spell out the distinct offices. So you want to make sure, are they having the same distinctions as the Bible? It clearly spells out the qualifications required, so you want to ask about that. And it qu- clearly spells out the duties required of pastors and then deacons or ministry leaders. So you just want to check This church and how they're defining things, are they defining things the same way that the Bible would? This is probably such uh, a common structure. It's become ingrained in people's minds that this false dichotomy that's been created, it's hardly ever questioned. You use the word elder, they think, okay, I know what you mean by that. That means the non-studied seminarian guy who runs the church. And then you got the pastors, those are the guys who went to school, the more egg-headed guys that, that preach and that kind of stuff. They lead ministry. Um, that's such a distinction. It's hardly questioned. And then books are written. I just pulled one up here on, on my Kindle that uh, probably one of the best-selling books on church governance in this model, uh, it's called Elders and Leaders. That's the name of it because in their mind there's the elder board and then there's the guys who lead the church in terms of ministry. Here's one statement I pulled up from, it doesn't have a page number, but uh, in the middle, well, it's four-fifths through the book. They, they, this church was growing. He talks about his own experience. And they started having the pastoral staff come to their board meetings. And he said, in essence, the staff began to function as if they were elders. So consequently, the elders asked them to stop attending the meetings. Okay? Now, if you just... I know we've harped on it a lot. Presbyteros, Poimen, Episcopos. That's all the same. If, if you just have that one truth in your mind, statements like that seem absurd. On the next page, he says this... Uh, Think of this bizarre statement. Though every staff pastor should be qualified to be an elder, nowhere in Scripture does it say that he must have elder authority. Number one, that's blatantly wrong, but it's based on his foundational assumption that elders are laymen who lead the church. Buck stops there. They're like the trustees of the church. And then you've got the pastors that we hire to kind of do the work of the ministry. He says, well, we we realize it would be important if the pastors got in on the meetings so you know they could really have some feeling of authority but then they started acting like they were actually the elders so we told them to stop coming uh and now you know some of them they should be qualified of course to be an elder but right we don't want them to think that they have the authority of an elder right well you've created a false dichotomy it is so ingrained in our thinking we get it asked all the time and this our pastors you know do you have elders you're talking to one, right? Of course we have elders, right? But what they mean by that is, do you have lay board members that lead the church? 
That's a, it's a false dichotomy. It's not even a biblical distinction. You've made that distinction. Now you're trying to judge a church based on that distinction. Go back to Scripture, restudy it. You'll have a whole different view of this if you really take this, the word at, at face value. Because you can find that not just in First Peter, but you find it in Titus, right? You right. find the distinction. You see, okay. you see the word elders, overseer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's always, and that's the pastoral epistles, what we're looking at for a description of a pastor. Let's go there all the time. I, I was so thankful for counsel that I got in seminary from, uh, the, you know, you have those doctrinal systematic theolog- the, theology classes. But then you had pastoral ministry classes. And my professor, I remember him saying, be careful of going to a church where they're going to have this distinction because if you are a pastor and they have elders who do something else, it's going to go bad for you. And I'm so thankful for that counsel. Well, and I think we've made the point, hopefully clearly, the, the biblical nature of what, of what we're saying and the unbiblical nature of drawing this distinction. And I'd say not only is that distinction unbiblical, but uh, in churches that I've seen this happen, it's also very impractical. I mean, it, it can lead easily to division. I mean, just when you think about it, you've got the pastors meeting over here and the elders meeting over here, just the miscommunication that's going to happen and then just in the inefficiency and slowing things down, I think it's impractical as well as... And any structure can split, yeah. right? I mean, Pete talked about the schism of the 11th century. You can have a pyramid structure and still split the entire pyramid in half. So... You know, and as we've often said, any structure can be undermined by bad hearts, bad hearts. right? So we know that to be true. But anyway, we've got, we got a sixth one here to talk about. So our sixth model, autonomous pastoral team-led. And as we've been, been talking about over and over again, uh, we want to look at the Bible. We want to see the principles that uh, the Bible set forth, the patterns that Scripture says, and say, uh, is this really what God is prescribing for us, or is God just describing what has happened in a time period? Uh, so for the New Testament, the patterns, we see there's a plurality of pastors, multitude of pastors, and just several things when we look at Paul. Uh, the first thing in Acts 14.23, we see Paul and Barnabas, when they go on their missionary journeys, they went from uh, city to city, and they appointed Elders, uh, plural right there. So they're always appointing multiple elders there. Uh, also in Titus 1.5, when uh, Paul is instructing Titus to appoint elders, it's, it's plural again. Uh, You've got to appoint elders. Uh, and lastly, for Paul in Philippians 1.1, when he's, he's writing the, uh, the letter to the church in Philippi here, he writes the saints the elders, plural, and then the deacons. So we see Paul uh, is planting elders, or he's appointing elders. He's telling Titus to appoint elders, and then he's writing to churches that have elders. Uh, we lost it. Lost it. That's no good. There we go. Oh, back on. Yeah. Okay. Looking through the whole New Testament, we look at James. James... Um, we see in James 5.14 that it, the elders are supposed to go pray over the sick. The sick. But something to notice, too, in James 1.1, 1, 1, uh, James is writing to the Jews that are spread all throughout the region. So he's writing to multiple Jewish Christian people, different churches, that there's supposed to be elders at those churches who would go and uh, pray over the sick people. And then also we have Peter as well. Uh, in First Peter 1 and 5, chapter 5, 1 and 2, the elders are supposed to 
care for the flock. And same thing, similar to James, Peter is riding throughout Asia Minor, the Christians in Asia Minor, to the churches in Asia Minor, and saying there's supposed to be a, a multitude, a, a plurality of elders who are governing over the church. Now, in the New Testament, when we look at the, patter, the, the pastors there, a key thing to notice when we're talking about lay elders versus uh, a team of elders, uh, one thing we see is that there's a vocational position for pastors, where the Bible makes it clear that the pastors uh, are, are worthy of their pay, they, they should be paid, um, and several pastors, just to point to that, is 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 12, uh, let me read that for you, or if you want to turn there with me, why don't we turn there, 1 Corinthians 9, chapter 9, verse 9, and Paul is writing here, and one thing that we, we note with Paul, Paul uh, also says that he doesn't want to receive money because he, he wants to be preaching the gospel free of charge here. And so some people say, well, why, why are pastors paid? Why aren't people just like Paul who are preaching the gospel free of charge? Something with Paul is he's, doing, he's going out city to city. He's evangelizing. He's uh, going to try to win people to Christ, persuade people to know Christ. And so he doesn't want money to be an issue there. Um, but he tells people that he's worthy of the pay. He, it would be okay for him to get paid. Um, so we got 1 Corinthians 9, 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in the hope and the threshers thresh in the hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among, among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So Paul's saying, hey, we had the right to receive payment for this, but we didn't want to uh, because we wanted the gospel not to be hindered. Um, and so, same thing, when we go over, let's say, to Amman, and we're planting a church in Amman, and we have pastors there that are teaching the people there, uh, we are supporting our pastors in Amman to preach the gospel, basically free of charge to those people. Why? Because we want to see the gospel not be hindered. We want to see people come to Christ in Amman. And eventually, what we'd love to see is those people pay their pastors to do the work of preaching the word. Um, and same thing here where Paul's saying the preachers, the teachers are worthy of their pay. Galatians 6, 6, just another passage here where it says, let the one who is taught the, let the one who is taught the word shall share all good things with the one who teaches. Meaning those who are being instructed by the word shall, shall or share or support the one who teaches. And then also 1 Timothy 5, uh, 17, talking about elders. The elders deserve uh, the wages for the work for preaching and teaching. So similar to what Ben was talking about, when we, talk, when we look at elders, when we look at pastors, same position, same fun function in the, the New Testament, they're worthy of their pay. Uh, and that's the, the big difference between that lay elder is a lot of times they just come in. They come in one time a month. They go to a board meeting and they say, that's my job as an elder. But they're not really doing anything worthy of pay. Now, for the function of these pastors, 
is they're supposed to manage and care for the flock. 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5 also give a bunch of character traits of, about elders, about what kind of people they're supposed to be. But a function that they're supposed to do is they're supposed to uh, care for the people, manage over the people. Say if they cannot manage their own home, how can they manage the people of God? And then similarly in First Peter 5 and Ephesians 4, they're supposed to shepherd the people and they are supposed to exercise oversight over the people. So they are ruling over the people. And then lastly in Ephesians 4, 11, again in 1 Timothy 5, 17, their job is to preach and teach the word to the people. So really what we got going on here at Compass is we, we have what the Bible sets for, forth, what the Bible prescribes for elders, what, who elders are supposed to be, their character qualities, that prescribes the function of what elders are actually supposed to do in the church. And the Bible describes uh, different kind of what people say is different kind of governments uh, of the church. And what we're saying is what we want to do here at Compass Bible Church is we want to fit in the parameters of what the Bible is saying elders are supposed to do. Um, so we have a group of elders here at our church governing the church. All of our elders, all of our pastors, we teach in different areas of ministries. And then when we make decisions for the church, we get together and we make decisions. So, uh, for example, uh, every other Wednesday we have just a strictly pastor's meeting where we get together, we meet together, issues come up, and we make decisions for the church uh, that, that comes up. So, uh, and, and we talk about it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a group uh, decision where we talk, we discuss, and we collectively make a decision where we can all get on the same board, on the same page, and move forward saying we're within, we're, we're following the biblical principles when we lead this church uh, a certain direction. And uh, so that's really the way that we function here at Compass Bible Church. I don't know if we want to give any examples of those meetings, but we're all in them. So. I used to tell a lot of jokes and keep the guys laughing, so that's one part of the meeting. And then Bobby says, are you done? It's bagels and brew at 9.30. Yeah. yeah, we meet often, a lot more than that, obviously, and we meet uh, you know, every, every Wednesday, but we broaden the circle a little bit every other Wednesday right. and close it down every other Wednesday. And then, of course, we're meeting a lot when we don't plan to meet. Right. Um, well, for, for example, Fall Fest. Right? I mean, that's a great example. We, we're discuss, discussing this as a group of pastors. Is this a, a wise thing to do? Should, should we be doing this? How are we reaching the community? How are we redeeming the, 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 the holiday for Christ? Is this, is this hitting the objective here? Is there a biblical reason why we're having this event? And we're all discussing it. We're all talking about God's word in relation to this event and saying, is this something that we think would be wise, would be a good steward of God's money in leading the church in this direction? And so those big decisions, we're, we're talking about that all the time. Uh, we have those, those group meetings. We have side meetings. We're, we're, we're trying to come to the best decision collectively together to move forward uh, for our church and making those decisions. When I mentioned just at the end of talking about the lay-led church and how sometimes that can also be impractical, I think this is one of the ways we see it. All of us, the number one thing on our minds is Compass Bible Church, managing it, caring for it, shepherding it. So as issues arise that aren't, you know, 
um, when a monthly board meeting is scheduled, we can get together like that and discuss those and make decisions as situations come up. I think perhaps the deception that's often uh, falsely impressed upon our people because I'm the primary teacher, they see me up in front every weekend, the most at least, uh, you know, the, 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 this isn't the way we function, but this is the way we function. We function as a board, as a team, as a group, as a, you know, cohort, whatever you want to call us, to make decisions for the church. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons my office isn't at my house. It's at the church. I'm here every day. We're all here every day. Uh, we, you know, we, we have this interaction to make practical decisions for the church and this isn't Mike Fabares sitting in his office making decisions, which I think is the caricature sometimes of this church because we have a primary preaching pastor. But, but that even goes to what you're preaching on when, when they do see you up here preaching. When we talked about what were you going to preach after the book of Romans, that was a conversation that took place among all of us, mm -hmm. which led us to the gospel of Luke. So even in the decision of what you are going to preach on, that's a decision that everybody here is talking about so it really is a team that's the word i like team it, that's what we are we're a team of men who are pastors elders and we are here to lead this church and we give it everything that we have because we are paid by this church we have the ability to pour 100 percent of our effort into this church into you the people of our church and I think we love this. I mean, we, we've been called by God to do this, Absolutely. and it is the satisfaction of our heart's desire to be here serving the people of this church. It's, I mean, I, I, people ask me, how are you doing today? I say, I'm doing great. I'm at Compass <laughs> Bible Church. This is, it's an amazing opportunity to be able to do what we're doing. Great. One more model because we're running out of time. Uh, model number seven, uh, which I probably wouldn't address if I was pastoring in Cincinnati, but since we pastor in California, and this is where the glut of, glut's the wrong word, the concentration of Calvary chapels are, uh, our good friends at Calvary Chapel, and I mean that, uh, it is their governance model, and they call it this, uh, we should at least be exposed to it. There are over 1,000 Calvary chapels, churches. Uh, most of them are in California. That's the, the largest concentration here, and obviously there's tons of them here in Southern California. So if you drive by a Calvary Chapel, you're driving by a church that um, is almost uniformly going to subscribe to the model called the Moses, Moses model. It's a governance based on the theocracy of Israel. And even as uh, Eliot said, when your ecclesiology and eschatology kind of get you know, confused and, and you start drawing your models for church governance from Old Testament models, you know, already there your eyebrow is raised going, well, wait a minute. And as, as Chuck Smith would, would say, and as he's put in print, uh, in his book that deals with church governance, uh, you know, he goes back to Moses in the Old Testament, and he says, when God was running a theocracy, here's how it worked. And the pastor now serves in the role of, of Moses, which is basically how it works. Moses is the pastor, uh, and he calls it a modified form of that. He's not trying to say, you know, that, that the pastor is, you know, the prophet in, on the level of Moses, but the structure was. Because if you remember, in the Old Testament, we found the word elder. It's translated into English from Hebrew, elder, but it's the, it's the synonymous term to presbyteros in the New Testament. And so you find the elders of Israel. That's a common phrase. Well, the elders of Israel in the wanderings in, in, in the book of Numbers, they interfaced with Moses how? See, they weren't teeming with Moses. Moses was the prophet. 
Moses marched up the mountain, got information from God, brought the information back, and the elders of Israel just basically said, how, how can we help? How can we help? What can we do? They were the assistants. Um, so there's one singular leader who gets direction from God. And because, of course, Calvary has the charismatic leanings, more subjective leanings, uh, you know, that, that's comfortable terminology from them. The pastor's getting that uh, even, you know, subjective direction from God, of course, based on the parameters of God's word. You know, these are good guys. I'm not saying they're not, but I'm just saying this is their model. So every church that's a Calvary chapel, you got one guy. That guy serves the role of him and God, not in a, you know, wacky uh, sense in terms of, you know, it's, it, he's getting direct communication. But the, the idea of God leading that one man, he is the person who then is the, the primary singular leader, and then all the elders assist. They're the assistance to that one man. And that one man directs the church. It's his vision, his decisions, his direction. Now, of course, some Calvaries, you know, may do it a little different, and not every Calvary pastor is quite as strong of an alpha leader as, as some of the others. But that's certainly in writing how they structure and support their, their view. So the elders are simply supporting the pastor and seeking God's direction. The pastor is seeking God's direction. The elders support that direction, and that one pastor uh, runs the, the leadership of, of the church. That uh, is pretty common. That's not what we do here. And a lot of people think, for a lot of reasons, maybe because we're on our programs are broadcast or preaching on Calvary Satellite Network, they think, well, we must be a Calvary Chapel run that way. It's not how we're run. We have that sixth model that we run under here that our pastoral team makes the administrative decisions for the church, not the one guy who comes out of the prayer closet and says, well, here's what we're going to do about Fall Fest. You know, that's not how it works here. Here we sit down and say, wow, what do we do about Fall Fest? And, um, and every other week, we're broadening the circle to more of our ministry leaders and engaging Susan and the rest of the team trying to figure out, okay, we, we need to think through some of these things together as a team. Well, that hour and a half went by pretty quickly. <clears throat> Maybe not for them. <laughs> but for us, I hope you see where this fits in to the structures of church governance And uh, that's all we have time for tonight. But let me dismiss this with a word of prayer. Hopefully that was helpful and clarifying for you. So they have a a one announcement. Do you want to do that first or after? About pickup? After. After. Whatever. After. We can do it whenever. Let's do it right now. That's a great time to do it. Okay. Awana is being picked up. Or if you have a TNT student, pick them up in 120 West. That's the announcement for Awana. Where do they normally pick them up? They could pick them up somewhere else. Somewhere else normally? You don't really know, do you? I I don't know. You're just saying what Greg told you, huh? It's true. Yeah, that's what I thought. All right, let's pray. Let's pray. God, thanks for our time here. Thanks for a chance just to kind of at least let uh, this group, this representative group of our church, uh, get a little more clarity, uh, looking at the broad landscape and then kind of clarifying what our church is uh, trying to do and applying the principles of New Testament church governance, uh, give our church a sense of... uh, of understanding in this, and, and even uh, we just love to have our church unified around uh, what, we're, what we're doing and how we're functioning. That would be great without the dissension or the, um, or the factions that can be raised as people uh, want to debate these things. This is the clear, unified decision of our leadership as to how the church functions, and I pray that we could get excited and even see the fruit of this, the way this works so well and has worked so well uh, to, uh, to move this ministry forward. Thanks for this team. Thanks for these guys. I, I pray, God, that you would continue to give us corporately together 
real clarity about uh, the direction of all the things that we do here. We'd be always as we ought to, as First uh, Peter 5 says, to be examples to the flock, not lording our authority over the flock, but uh, really uh, because we love our, our flock, we love this church, just giving our lives, as Paul said, spending and being expended for the souls of the people here in our church. And let us govern well, let us, uh, let us teach well, let us be good leaders. I pray you'd bless our leadership and, God, you'd bless our church as a result of our care in even trying to apply what the Scripture has to say. So, God, dismiss us now with a sense of your presence and, uh, I hope, with a sense of greater clarity regarding your word on this topic. In Jesus' name, amen.